So those of you who listen to my show know that I had Mel Brooks on and it was a, an amazing conversation. And I, I want to, I sort of talked about a story that is unfolding that involves me, Mel Brooks, and Carl Reiner that was one of the most spectacular moments of my life in show business. And this is the the second part of this story. We'll, we'll, we'll conclude at the end of the Carl Reiner episode. I'll give you some more detail, but let me set this up a little bit for you. So I interview Mel Brooks and we have a good time. You heard it. We take a liking to each other. I always liked him, but he had no idea who I was and he ended up liking me and we had a nice time. He walked me out to my car. It was all very uh, uh, charming and funny. And he says, I, you know, I'm going to set you up with Carl. And as you recall, I said, how is Carl? And Mel said, well, he's about 80%. And I said, oh, well, that's good. That's good. You know, he's hanging on. Everybody's good. And you'll hear in the Carl Reiner episode, it's a very different type of conversation. Uh, you know, Carl is Carl Reiner. Mel is Mel Brooks. But they're both uh, have a lot of clarity. They got all their uh, all their ducks are still in a row. Some of them are a little wobbly, but they're all in a row and they're tight, man. Yeah, they're 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 definitely present and coherent and just great. Great, agile, comedic minds. These guys are the best there ever was, really, the two of them. Now, let's set the stage a little bit. So after Mel tells me he's going to hook me up with Carl, uh, we set it up. A few weeks go by, and then I got to drive over to Carl's house. Now, I have to really uh, accentuate how familiar this feels to me, not just because I grew up with Mel Brooks' movies or or Carl Reiner uh, and and Rob Reiner and the 2,000-year-old man, uh, but there, there's a Jewishness to this whole adventure that that is very familiar with to, to, to me. You know, I drove to Carl's house in Beverly Hills. I got out of the car, and it was a it was a home. You know, in the old old part of Beverly Hills, so it's a home next to other homes, but it's a big home. The door was open. There was commotion going on. There was people coming in and out. There was a woman there uh, who was doing something. There was a guy who I think is the uh, publicist for his new book, Carl Reiner. I remember me which is his new book out now. Uh, and uh, and uh, George Shapiro was there. Now, George Shapiro, uh, as you know or may not know, is a very big uh, comedy manager. He manages Carl. Uh, he manages Jerry Seinfeld. He's got a few writing clients. He used to manage Ordney Adams. But, uh, but he's Carl's nephew, and he's in his 70s. I, I'm speculating there, but I would say he's in his 70s. So now the familiarity with me is, you know, you drive up to a house, the doors open, there are things going on. Uh, there's a living, this is a house that looks like it's been lived in. I picture Rob Reiner growing up there. I picture the family there. I picture, you know, in Jewish households, Not I'm not saying it's specific to Jewish households, but I just, I felt immediately at home. You sit in the living room and it looks like people sit in this living room, you know, food's been served in here. And, and just look, old Jews are familiar to me. That's all. But Carl is not... I don't know if I can say this. How can I say this? He's not as uh, as overtly Jewish or Jewy as Mel Brooks. It's a different frequency. Uh, it's a different uh, tone. But I walk in, and uh, George Shapiro's there, and uh, you know he's talking to me about this and that. And then uh, we're waiting for Carl. The publicist is there, and then uh, we're getting set up. And then Carl's going to come down, and then Carl makes his way down. Now Carl's almost ninety-one, and it was a grand entrance. He sits down in the chair and I set up the mics and uh, we begin to talk. Now, what happens after Carl sits down is uh, he's sitting in a chair. I'm sitting in a chair next to him, right next to him, across directly across a coffee table from Carl is Mr. George Shapiro, who sits in that chair. And I will say this lovely man during the interview. I did glance over and there were times where he was napping. He was napping a little bit in and out. No problem. Uh, The publicist guy, he's sitting on the sofa. 
Now, you got to understand something. I explained this the last time. Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks spend almost every evening together uh, just sitting there doing whatever they do. And we talk, I talked to Carl a little bit about what they do. But this is a lovely, you know, oh, it's got to be almost a you know century-long friendship. And it's very touching to me. And just sitting among <laughs> Jews, old Jews, makes me very comfortable. So, so let's, let's now go to, uh, to my conversation with Carl Reiner. And we will, we, will, we will reconvene here after the discussion so I can fill you in on the rest of the story. It's, it's, it's beautiful. All right, it's beautiful. Let's go now to me and Carl talking in Carl's living room. The first voice you hear is George Shapiro was there when I was setting up my microphones. I might have picked a little bit of that up. Now you do everything yourself. You're the whole crew. I'm the whole thing. Very yeah, I, I think that's the way to go. Very impressive. Sure. Here's one. Uncle Carl. Hello. Hello, Baron. There he is. Look, he's the whole crew as well as the star. I love it. I love it. I do the whole thing. I love that. Try to get you. I'll do whatever the else is left. You All do whatever you go Mark ahead. says now. You sit, how are you, sir? Nice, nice to, to see you. you. Mel said he had a good time with you. Yeah, Mel has, has nothing but good things to say about you. Oh, well. <laughs> and I, was, I will have exactly... Is that the understanding you two well, have? Well, I do more, even, more than he does. I. He says he comes over here every night. He sits right over there. Yeah. And you guys uh, have uh, things you do. Yes, we do. <laughs> and one of them I might tell you about later because it is so crazy that no one in the world is going to believe it. And I don't even know if I'm going to tell it, but we may. We may. We'll see. It has to do with chicken feathers. Chicken feathers. Yes. And does that intrigue you? Well, I mean, if we don't call that back later, it's yeah. going to be, people are going to be curious the entire show. Okay. You know, what the hell was that about? But the interesting thing about the, your dynamic, and from what I know about it, I'm a, I'm a little younger, is that uh, there was definitely a, a straight man kooky guy. No question about it. <laughs> Did no you guys invent that? No. What happened, and you want the genesis, and I've done this a number of times, but it's it's good to have in a place like this where it's forever. Yeah. Because this is uh, this goes into the capsule, doesn't it? Sure, I'm Whatever sending it out. Do. Yeah, I'll, I'll okay. put it in a capsule and I'll in bury it. In 1950, I came to work on the show of shows with Sid Caesar yeah. playing his straight man. The first day there, there was a young man, a very short young man, who was in Sid's pocket. In yeah. other words, Sid had hired him personally to be his... Sid loved him. He was gag, his a gag guy. man, right. Yeah. He paid Sid. Yeah. Uh, Sid paid him like $35 a week to right. be around. Max Liebman didn't want to have him around because he was too wild and crazy. He was kooky. He used to slide into the office and on the floor and say, safe, he hit the wall, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, so the first day I was there, he stood up. I had, didn't know who he was. And he started to complain. He was a Jewish pirate. Yeah. And he says, I, you don't know. He says, uh, you know something about cost sale cloth today? He says, I can't pillage and rape anymore. He says, it's $3.35 for a yard. You can't go out and, and, and go my set, set sail anymore. Anyway, he was went off for a half hour. I was hysterical. <laughs> the following day, I came in. It was a, no, the following, yeah, it was a Saturday, whatever it was. Yeah. The following, I came in and I remembered something. That might make a good sketch. It was We the People Speak with Dan Seymour. Yeah. He was a man who was actually in Stalin's toilet and yeah. heard Stalin say, going to blow the world Thursday. 
And I said, that'd be a good thing for a sketch. And they didn't think so. But from that, I was frustrated. I turned to Mel, who was sitting on the couch, very much in the position you're sitting now. And I said, here's a man who was actually at the scene of the crucifixion 2,000 years ago. Isn't that true, sir? Yeah. And that's him ringing yeah, now. Mel here. Hello? Larry, I'm in the middle of a, a conversation here with a man with a microphone. So, so get, come over and listen. Okay. Who's that? That was Larry O'Flahaven, who arranged all of this. Okay. Anyway, and I said, uh, and I said, the man at the crucifixion 2,000 years ago. Isn't that true, sir? Yeah. And he said, oh, boy. <laughs> That's his first words. I said, you were there? Yeah. You knew Jesus? Yeah. Thin lad, right? <laughs> always wore sandals, walked with 12 other guys. They always came into the store, never bought anything. Always asked for water. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that started. Yeah. For the next half hour, I, I just asked questions about his days yeah. way back then. All improvised. All, of course. Yeah. He didn't know what I was going to ask, and I didn't know what I was going to ask, but he intrigued me every... No. It's Wait. him again. Hold on. Hello? Paul, I'm in the middle of a... Of a, 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 a Interview. A, yes. I'm being recorded. That was Paul Brownstein, another yeah. one of these yeah. fellows who in charge of making, <laughs> making me famous. Um it's going to happen, I think, yeah, finally. So, so <laughs> the next one is Obama. I expect to call later, but he said he'd hold off. I told him I had an important interview, so he said I'll hold off. It's only about the Near East. So, uh, yeah. So for the next hour, I interviewed him, and then anytime where there's a lull in the office, yeah, I would just jump up and. Not jump up. I would just say, here's a man who. Right. I, he was either the 2,000-year-old man or a, a great psychiatrist or right. a, whatever it was. <laughs> that was the and, premise. And he didn't even know what I was going to make him. The second I said who he was, he became that person. I once did a thing where I said, we're at a psychiatric convention. There were six great psychiatrists from all over the world. And he was all of them, and we gave them names, and we couldn't remember what they were. I said, I think that was Dr. Haldanish, and all. He said, check it back. And we, anyway, that was what we did. And at parties, there wasn't a party that somebody said, go, get up and do the 2000. They would invite night. you for that reason. Well, we were invited anyway. When we, we, had, we had friends. We, had, went to din we would have gone to dinner there anyway. But Joe Stein was one of the places. Mm -hmm. and, and the interesting thing was that... We did it for ten years. Yeah, and people used to say, "Put that on a, put that on a record." And we said, "No, this is only for, for Jews and non-anti-Semitic Gentiles." I said, "It was very, very inside. Well, yeah. it was five years after the war. Yeah. The Jewish accent was persona non grata in society because the Jews had been, you know, decimated and made fun of for the last, you know. Well, that's interesting. Did you consciously at some point, it, because did you have a, a, an accent? Because it, Mel seems to embrace it to an no, extreme. No, Mel, Mel became a middle European. I, it was, I was a 2,000-year-old man would have a Jewish accent. But he talks like that sort of anyways. No, no. He's, no? <laughs> he's got good language. <laughs> no, but um, anyway, so for 10 years, yeah. we just at parties and, and so. The one party we went to, there was a, Joe Fields, who was a big Broadway producer. Anytime there was, he was in town, he made a party so that we could come yeah. and entertain his friends. <clears throat> it was like Mo the, Mozart did that, too, you sure. know. They, He'd set so up chairs. Get up and play the piano. He'd put chairs out? <laughs> no, no they, wherever it was, a living room. Oh, yeah. And at one particular party out here at an A-list party, that was Joyce Haber's name for star, real stars, mm -hmm. at an A-list party, after we finished, 
three people came up to us. The first one was George Burns smoking a cigar and saying, uh, you've got that on a record? And we said, no. He said, well, put it on a record or I'm going to steal it. <laughs> and then it was J- uh, Edward G. Robinson said, he's make a play out of the thousand-year-old man. He said, I want to play that on Broadway. And I said, it's 2,000 years. I can play any age. I remember <laughs> saying that. And the last one coming up was the dearest of yeah. all was a guy named Steve Allen who yeah. cared about handing people, handing the world comedy people. He would love nothing more than to discover a comedian Great champion and say, comedy. here he is. Yeah. And so he came over and he says, fellas, he says, you got to put that on record. He says, I'll give you a studio that I use for World Pacific for my jazz recordings. And we went into that studio with about 150 friends, and uh, we wailed for two, three hours. That was the original. The original, and we cut it down to 47 minutes. And then we still didn't know it was going to work. It wasn't for friends. And I remember the first edition... uh, the interesting thing, I was working at Universal at the time. I started writing movies, and Cary Grant was my neighbor, and I gave him an album, and he came back, and he says, Carl, can I have a dozen? And I said, what are you going to do? He said, I'm going to London. I said, are you going to take him to London? Yes. He said, they speak English there, you know. <laughs> and, and he came back, and he says, she loved it. I said, ooh, he's the queen mother. I said, you took this to Buckingham Palace. <laughs> oh, my he God. He says, yes, and she laughed. <laughs> and I said to Mel... The biggest shicks in the world accepted it, so anybody <laughs> would. And, of course, <clears throat> it did take off for that first album, and then we made five albums. After you got that. the royal stamp of approval. Yes, the, the royal stamp. When right. I was a kid, I, the first time I saw it was the animated one. Oh, yeah. Well, that yeah. was Saran Wrap. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, that was great. That was like three, four years after. So that was the first time that you and Mel had actually like pu- publicly performed? Hold Go on, ahead. Hold All on right. one second. Hello? Yeah, that's fine. Thank you. Okay. But that was the first time you guys sort of organized as a team. It was around that. Yeah, right. 50, 1950. And before that, you had done a lot of theater. You had done... Oh, no. I, I Starting at 17, I did... Uh, Where did you grow up? I grew up in the Bronx. At 17, I was a machinist. The Bronx gets a, <laughs> yeah. one was, round of applause. I, at 17, I, beca- at, I started to work in the millinery trade. First in the, uh, the dress trade as a shipping clerk, which for which I got... $12 an hour. Then that company went out of business, reopened, and I got $10 an hour. Were your parents from here? Were they? My parents were from Europe. My father came from Chernovitz, Austria Hungary Empire, my mother from Romania. And what were they, they? And if you'll read my book, you'll hear all about This is about the book, that. I Remember Me. Yeah, it's in there. My and you do remember. Oh, I do remember. What was, what was the Bronx like? I talked to Mel Brooks about Brooklyn. Can you give me a sense of the Bronx at the that Bron- time? The Bronx was a middle, lower, middle to lower the middle class neighborhood. If I tell you the um, the rent of the apartment, you'll know a three room apartment. My, when my parents moved in in 1917, was sixteen dollars a week. When I was born there, it was I think thirty five or fifty dollars a month. Rent. Have you ever gone back to to see if you could? I did. I went back once on uh, the New Yorker magazine wanted to do a piece on my days in the Bronx. Yeah, and I said, let's go see my old building, uh-huh. 179th Street. It was a five story walk up. And uh, there was nothing there. It was an empty lot. Oh, that's heartbreaking, they raised, isn't it? They had raised it. Across the way were older buildings, but they were uh, two, three, three, three-story buildings, but they were uh, uh, protected by the, uh, what, you know, the, uh, yeah. because they were mansions. Historical. Or historical or mansions. Yeah. Uh, historical buildings. Yeah. And so they, uh, what I got was a brick. I took two bricks, 
that were lying there, and I sent one to my brother in Atlanta. I said, here's our ancestral home, the was left of it. <laughs> this is it. And how many people in the family? Uh, my brother and I and my parents. Was there, was there relatives around? Was it? Uh, some relatives, not too close by. Yeah, we had a couple relatives. And what, what was the, your, your father's trade? A watchmaker by trade, which he made his living at, but what he really was doing was, was with his spare time was inventing things. He invented the self-winding wristwatch, the uh, the battery clock, which is right up there. He invented it? He got the patent yeah, on it? Yeah, he got the patent on the battery clock. No kidding. And then he invented a clock that he would run 100 years. He invented a battery, mm-hmm. a dry pile battery, which he made by hand, which I described in another book, hours and hours and hours, ter- uh, cutting out one disc at a time, a little disc the size of a penny, huh. thousands of them, uh-huh. painting them with a... Um, with a, an amalgam of yeah. silver and magnesium. And he, first he painted a 1,000 or 2,000 with the incorrect formula, and it didn't work. He did it again. This is on a kitchen table on a Sunday. <laughs> yeah. It took years. He finally got this dry pile, two piles, which had 5,000 amps and a milli, uh, 5,000 volts and a milliamp, just enough to take a, a um, pendulum back and forth uh-huh. or to track, repel, attract, repel. He got a patent on that. And did this uh, did this uh, elevate him out of uh, the Bronx? No, 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 no. This clock was uh, uh, not produced until after the war, and Germany and they caught the patent ran out, and then Germany Stole flooded it. the market with them. No kidding. Yeah, the other he invented. Was quite he bitter a, about that? No, never got bitter. Huh. He was happy to have have invented. He never said darn. <laughs> yeah, right. No, as a matter of fact, there's a picture of him over there behind you playing the violin. See that? Oh, yeah. Uh, he was a self-taught violin, flutist, clarinetist. Was he good? Played in, he played in symphony orchestras. Oh, you my know, God. You know, uh, Natural char- charity symphonies. And uh, and there is a picture. That picture is called Irving Shoots Irving Playing Irving. <laughs> and the re- reason I call it Shoots Irving is that he always he was a photographer, and I still have his daguerreotype plates. He took pictures of everybody, my mother nursing my, my brother at... Hundred-year-old picture on a, huh. on a plate of him. Uh, took a picture of my mother nursing Charlie, and and he never had a picture of himself until he decided, sat down and invented a self-timer, which he patented. He tried a patent; it was patent pending, but a Japanese inventor did it six months before, got a patent on it. But the, I, so he's playing. Who, so he's play, That's Irving, and it's shot by Irving. He, and he's he playing. Shot, he shot himself playing the violin. And, and who was the third Irving? The third Irving is the, the uh, my gr- granddaughter who plays that violin. This violin he bought for five hundred dollars in nineteen hundred when he came to America. Uh-huh. His brother played the violin. He said, "I want to learn to play it." He bought himself a violin and learned to play it. Got a book on violins and, and it how out. to read. Learned to play the violin and. And when he, my mother passed away, he came to live with us, and he brought his violin with him. He hadn't played it in years, but he could. When he picked it up, he could always play. Come it. Come right back. And then my granddaughter started to play the violin. Uh-huh. When, when she got ready for the full size violin, we gave her this one, and she does. She plays the violin and the harp, and that violin she played at a concert. And I, we went backstage to congratulate us. And she, uh, she said, "Wait, I'll be with you in a minute. I got to get Irving." I said, "Who's Irving?" 
She named the violin Irving, and she keeps a picture of that <laughs> picture of my father playing it in her sweet. violin box. That's sweet. Violin case. So you, we, you, it never was a, a uh, you didn't have the, the mindset or it wasn't appealing to you to, to go into the more technical skills? Yeah. Me, I had no m- musical ability. Luckily, um, my kids didn't get my genes. All my kids are musical. But I can sing on key if there's a big orchestra uh-huh. helping. I, I have a good voice. I had a good voice. I had a three-octave range, but no pitch and no timing. So I could never have been an opera singer, which is what I wanted to be, or a, a French, or a, a um, Irish tenor, which I write about in the book. And when did, uh, when did the acting thing start with you? When I was very young, when I, when I was cast and at three of age three, well, at age... Six or seven, I was in a Christmas, um, no, not a Christmas play, but the teacher said, who can do something for Christmas? A little entertainment in front of the class. And I could put both legs behind my my head and walk around on my hands, or one leg and hop around on. So she took me to all the classes. That was my first performance. The second one... You can't do that anymore, right? Not, no. <laughs> I, I could, as a matter of fact, until maybe 10, 15 years oh, yeah? ago. Yeah? But... Um, but not to, in the third grade. I played the the headsman in three and six who pass while the lentils boil, a well-known play at the time. <laughs> and uh, my mother was sitting next to the principal in the auditorium, and he said, "He's the best one, that boy there." Yeah. And she says, "My son." She says, "Well, he's the best one." And for that time on, my mother always called me the best one. You were the guy. But she'd see me in the play. <laughs> but I didn't do any acting again until after high school. In high school. I, when we were asked to learn Shakespearean um, speeches, I could do them better than anybody, but I was embarrassed that I did them so much better, they think I was crazy. So I never did them. Until later, years later, I was a machinist helper, doing, um, working on sewing machines as a, you know, assistant. And uh, my brother sent me a little clipping saying, free acting classes at the WPA workshop in Center Street, New York. And, and, you know, I, I, matter of fact, when I went to California, when I went to Washington to get a Mark Twain Prize, they asked me to talk to the Library of Congress about the WPA. About the WPA. And, and I made the, and they put it in the archives because I said, everybody's saying, get the government off the people's back. I says, no, that we belong on the people's, the, the people belong on the government's back. I said, it wasn't for the government sending me to, to allowing me to learn to be an actor, I wouldn't be an actor. I'm an actor here today because the WPA taught kids who wanted to act, got sent them to school, musicians became musicians, artists. I said there are murals all over the country in, in uh, you know, post offices that starving painters. And that was FDR, right? FDR, right. He put it all into place, and that's the big uh, criticism people level against Obama is that that it was socialist or that it was the, yes, which is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. That's what the government's supposed to do: help, right. help the people, government of the people, for yeah. the people, for the people. And what kind of uh, education did you get? I mean, what were the classes like? The the no, it was just a a small class with a, a Mrs. Whitmore. I'll never forget her. And yeah, a little English, old English lady who would, who gave us assignments. My assignment that. I mean, the only assignment I remember is to learn Queen Gertrude's speech from Hamlet, where she says, There's a willow grows a slant to brook, 
that shows his hoar leaves in the glassy stream. There, with fantastic garlands, did she come, with crowflowers, nettles, daisies, and long purples that liberal shepherds give a grosser name, but our gold, our cold maids do dead men's fingers call them. There, her coronet clambering to hang, her envious sliver broke, and anyway, it goes on like Very that. Very good. <laughs> I remember some of it. Look at that. That's 70, 80 years later. <laughs> she had quite an impression on yes, you. Yes, no, Shakespeare did. And then when you when you started to work, when did that start? I was working as a machinist helper, but at night my brother, uh, I found a uh, uh, an ad for, no, somebody told me, oh, no, while I was going to the class, they said the Gilmore Theater, Paul and Virginia Gilmore had a free theater, came in for free. Everybody saw it for free, paid a little tax, 10, 20 cent tax. Yeah. That was his, really. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I auditioned for them, and I got my first job, and the family upstairs and the bishop misbehaves. I was 17. I had a fake mustache. Not a fake. I grew a mustache, but penciled in most of it. Yeah, yeah. And I was making love to a 45-year-old actress, Virginia Gilmore. But it worked. And yeah. I had pair of tales, which I had, which was used on Broadway for Enter Laughing when, uh, when Alan Arkin played it. Those tales were in my mother's trunk. And we How did he get them? Yeah, and, and the sad thing is those tales were... For ten dollars, I had to raise ten dollars to buy tales, <clears throat> and uh, those tales disappeared because when the play was over, they gave it to Eve's costume. They thought it was an Eve's costume. They didn't know it was a, and it disappeared. How did Arkin get him? I, I, I had. You him, gave him to him? Yeah, of course. I said I, I lent it to him to use for the play. But I was, you guys were, you back. were friends, or well, no, but if I certainly was. Uh, Friendly to a man who was <laughs> depicting me on stage, he won. He won a Tony for it. <clears throat> he's an interesting guy. He's a funny guy. He's brilliant. He's yeah. one of the br most brilliant actors ever. Yeah, and smart and funny. And uh, I saw him in the Second City the first time. I never forgot the the line he said. He was showing people uh, artwork in a museum, and he said this particular picture uh, depicts man's inhumanity, man and. Uh, and a woman behind in the crowd says, I don't like it. He says, well, madam, you're wrong. <laughs> well, madam, you're wrong. Yeah. So now, did you tour, like I was, I, I talked to a friend of mine who's sort of an obsessive um, comedy researcher. And he, he gave me, uh, his name's Cliff. And he said there was a, a, a play you did uh, uh, called Call Me Master, or Call Me Mister. Yes. That's not a play. That was a musical. Uh-huh. After the war... Uh, when the soldiers came home, uh -huh. it was done on Broadway. Only people with with veterans of the war. You, you only could audition for it if you were a veteran. Were you a veteran? Yes. Oh, sure. How long were you over there? Three and a half years. What did you do over there? Well, the, for the first year, I was a first year. I was a radio operator in the uh, in the Air Force. Got pneumonia. Went to the hospital. After I came out, they sent me to. Signal training school, uh, Signal Corps. Uh -huh. Trained for that, became a teletype operator. On my way to Hawaii, on my, uh, at, in Hawaii, on a way, way someplace to Detachment 18, I went to see a place, a play at the University of Hawaii's Farringham Hall of G.I. Hamlet with Maurice Evans. And in it was Howard Morris playing Laertes, a guy I had worked on the NYA Radio Workshop, another government-sponsored organization. I played in radio when I was 17 for $22 a month doing playlets, plays on, uh -huh. on New, York, New York radio. Howard said, 
when I said, how are you? Well, wonderful. He didn't even take it out. He says, he was in charge of, of the section as a sergeant. He says, we need a comedian for a show. Do you do comedy? He knew I was funny. Yeah. But I was a straight actor when he knew me. And I said, yeah, I have 20, 30 minutes. He says, he pulled me out. A stand-up routine? Yeah, stand-up. And uh-huh. I said, But I said, I'm on my way. I did it, you know, in the rec halls. I said, but I'm on my way someplace, Detachment 18. Uh-huh. And he said, where? I said, I don't know, but tomorrow I'm tomorrow night I'm going. He called the general and traded me like a ball player. I got into <laughs> the For comedy. special yeah. service session, and I I performed in the, you know, in the, in the show called Shoot the Works for almost a half a year. It was and a then, variety show? A variety show. But then I wrote a show with Hal David writing the lyrics and somebody writing the music, a show called Shape Ahoy, which I toured the whole Pacific with. Saipan, Kwajalein, Tinian, Magmag, uh, Palau. And what was the structure of that show? Also a variety a, show? A variety show. Uh, no, a, a review. Uh-huh. It was a review with myself doing sketches and stand and one. And one. I did what a kind be- of stand-up did you do? At that point, I did a... Um, uh, I was a very good, very good, a pretty good impersonator. I had impersonations, which I did, but I was bored with them, so I was trying to find a new way to do it. So my introduction to myself was I came out and very sadly with a with a dog's uh, co- co- coat collar and leash and a and a you know a, a dog sweater. I said I'm, I'm sorry, but we I'm, the the act that was supposed to be here is Monty the talking dog. I says he's not here because he passed away yesterday. And I said I, I don't. I, all I can do is tell you about Monty. I said. And what he used to do, and and I did, I said my impressions of what Monty did is not anywhere near as good. And I did my impressions of Jimmy Stewart, you know Henry Fonda, as a dog. and they did all my impressions. Akim Tamirov, and I said the only t- impression I can't do is Monty's impression of a, of Trigger the Horse, Roy Rogers Trigger. He uses loads and loads of makeup for it, but he was so acceptable as as a horse. He, he was amazing, yeah. and I got a big hand for that. People loved it. Yeah, but the thing that was interesting about this, it's almost like a bad movie. Yeah. Uh, the section, I was tr- I trained as a teletype operator for a year with my buddies, Saul Pomerantz and a bunch of other guys. On VJ Day, I played about 100 installations, or I don't know how many installations uh, throughout the Pacific. The day we're in the air, we heard the war is over, VJ Day, we're landing in Iwo Jima, 17 installations we're going to play, a list of them. And the first installation on VJ Day was the 3117th Signal Battalion, my group. So on the day that we declared the winner of the war, I'm playing from, as a star of a show I'd written for all my buddies. It was the... It was like a bad Dan Daly movie, you know. What, no one, why? Because oh, no one cared, right? Oh, did they care? It they, was wonderful. They, they loved it. They got drunk, and they. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. <laughs> so there was a mixture of complete uh, reckless celebration, was, and then you're performing. <laughs> you know, no, it was it was just one of those heightened moments in life. So tell me about this. Uh, Call me Mister review. Oh, so when we got back, we were auditioned for Call Me Mister. Yeah. Uh, there was a um, interesting I didn't audition for it it was on Broadway I was auditioning at the um, MCA Music Corporation for a job in the mountains Mm -hmm. as an MC and I'm doing I'm in a little booth in that room and and there's a window a glass window you could look in from the somebody was looking in there and I'm doing you know I'm gyrating and making jokes (laughs) yeah 
And I got the job, but I got two jobs. The guy looking in the window, a stranger was looking, and my agent was looking, and, and, and the guy from uh, Lake Spofford, the guy who was going to hire me as a social director, he hired me. But the guy looking in the window was, <laughs> wait, just a moment, this is going to be interesting. Yeah. Hello? Andy, I'm being interviewed on, on a, okay, that's my daughter. Yeah. So the guy behind the window was Herman Levin, the guy who had produced Call Me Mr. on Broadway. He saw a doppelganger of Julie Munchen. I was very much like him. I mean, as far as I, yeah. and he saw me moving around. He knew, he hired me sight on, he didn't even know what I did. He said, <laughs> for the, tall and he for the road around. company. Yeah. For the road company. And when what he, year are we talking? 1947. And my wife had just given birth to my first son, Robbie, when I was in, when I was in Boston on a Saturday. And I remember coming down on Sunday and seeing, and, and I was on the road, and I have two things I remember about that. Herman Levin said, uh, do not send me reviews and t- saying you want a raise. You're getting $250 a week, and that's it. I expect you to get good reviews, so don't write me and say you want to raise for reviews. That's it. Mm-hmm. I said, okay. Now I'm on the road for a year. About a, we, we do three months in, in Boston. We do Cleveland, uh, Detroit. And while we're in Cleveland, uh, we're going to Chicago where we're hoping to do two or three months. And it's very important that we get good reviews there. But in Cleveland, we get a, an article from from the Chicago paper written by Claudia Cassidy, the critic in in the Chicago Tribune, saying, uh, I saw Call Me Mr. in New York. And she mentions Julie Munch and and rips the hell out of him. And he was great, by the way. But she didn't like him for some reason. She said, if Mr. Whoever's playing his part, if if he's anything like, whatever, don't come to Chicago. Go on to Cleveland. We don't need your show here. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, it was preemptive. Well, we were going to go there, and we were looking for to be there for three months. Right. That would be the yeah. So uh, we went there. She saw the opening night, and she wrote an article, a thing saying what I hated about the show is all changed now because of the brilliance of this. And she gave me a review that oh. could have been for Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. And of course. We stayed there six months. Oh. We had a six-month run in Chicago. Now, there were some other com- comedians that people know in that show, right? Yeah, Buddy Hackett was in there, and, uh, well, I don't know. The- Shelley? Shelley Berman? No, no, no. No, no, no he wasn't. No, no, he was too young. Then. Yeah? No, no. So you, so Buddy Hackett, before he started doing stand-up? Oh, he was doing stand-up. Oh, yeah? Too. Yeah, he was funny kid. Crazy as a loon, but funny as a lark. <laughs> yeah. A loon and a lark. So when you made the shift to... Uh, because it seems that you had relationships with, uh, you know, like four, at least four of the, the funniest people ever. You know, being, you know, Sid Caesar. Oh, Sid Caesar, absolutely. And Dick Van Dyke, Mel yeah. Brooks, Steve yeah. Martin. Hey I, are you, hey, I never thought of it that way, but I have had, I stood very close to all of those people. Yeah, you had a profound influence yeah. on their lives. And, 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 yeah. and with Sid, because, you know, I talked to, uh, to Mel Brooks about Sid Caesar, that there, there's, there's a, a reverence in, in Mel Brooks for Sid Caesar that... All incredible. of us, everybody who ever did comedy, the difference between Sid and every other comedian yeah. was Sid was terribly, terribly funny. <laughs> he couldn't make a new joke, right. but he could do attitudes and things. He just just made everything that was written funnier than it was written, and he's one of the few people who could find things 
in, in, in a live audience and a live camera, find things to enhance what was done and have the audience roaring with laughter. And uh, I, I talk about him a lot uh, as far as being an extraordinary actor. You know, people went to the actor's studio. I've talked about this before. As a matter of fact, I'm going to have to talk about it again. Poor Sid is so, so not well now. It's really, Do you go see him? Yeah, I'm going to see him. I saw him. I'm going to see him in a couple of week, a week or so, having a party. But he's out of it. He's yeah. really out of it. It's yeah. very sad. But I was saying, Sid is one of the greatest actors I've ever worked with. Yeah. Everybody goes to the actor's studio, Stanislavski, to learn sense memory and things like that. Where sense memory is like holding an object and making it have weight, heft, and uh, volume. And I remember two two incidents where nobody could believe this. We were doing a pantomime. We're saying he's having trouble opening a jar of pickles. Yeah. And Sid took a picked up a you know fake jar, no, nothing in his hand, and he's struggling to open the jar. And he finally opens it, and there and so and the, the writer said, "Well, there's nothing really funny. I forget it." And and all of a sudden, everybody's laughing. And, and Sid said, "What are you laughing at?" He says, "You know what you did." He says, "What did I do? I didn't do anything." He says, "Yes, you did." You know what Sid did? It was so real, this jar of pickles that he had opened when they said it doesn't work. Without knowing, he closed the jar and put it down. He didn't. That was one indication that his yeah. sense memory was so right. real. Yeah. Every, every actor and comedian in the world, when they're smoking a cigarette, yeah. they do this. Yeah. They, they clamp the lips together the where, this, where the cigarette yeah. is, and, they, and they, you know, they hold it like this, yeah. or they hold it like this. Yeah. Yeah, you've seen it. Yeah, he didn't do that. When he had a cigarette, a fake cigarette on his lips, there was space there, and when he took it out, there was space in his fingers. Right. So it was that precise. That was sense memory, which they try to teach in Stanislavski, but I've never seen an actor do that. I'm standing this close to him. I said, "Oh my God, look what the fuck he's doing." Yeah, yeah. And and there was one other incident where he could conjure up the truth in him. We played a, a bombs over bombs. No, what was it called? It was a a, a um, submarine picture. All uh -huh. you, you, know, you, know, you, all you Nazis get in your submarine. And uh, anyway, I, I was the uh, lieutenant or something, and he was a soldier. And I said, "Put the cut to a torpedo," and I dropped the torpedo on his on his foot. Yeah, and <laughs> he didn't do anything. He just one eye started to to twitch. <laughs> and with uh, both eyes were twitching, and then within seconds, tears were coming down his eyes. He didn't touch his eyes. People have always put drops in yeah, their eyes yeah, to make yeah. them look tears, or they put they blow some nitrate in it, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah, you know, smelling salts. Yeah, and your eyes tear. And here he's 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 doing this, and and within seconds, a tear is falling. He conjured up a tear. Just like that. Yeah, that's... that's so he's a complete natural. He was a great actor. He yeah. was a great actor and probably the greatest comedian ever to work on television. Because when you both talk about him, I mean, there are certain people, I haven't met many, but it just seems like that he was so full of energy and life and brilliance that you just wanted to be around it. You were just yeah. thrilled to be part of it. And, you know, he was also very giving, too. I mean, I was a straight man. So many, from so many years, but I remember we did a thing called Blast Video Theater, where we're taking off on James Mason, who the week before we saw him do this, where he said, now next week we're going to have that 
a, a wonderful American play with that great American star, Arlene Dahl. Arlene mm. Dahl. He actually said that. <laughs> yeah. On the air. Yeah. He, he couldn't believe that. He was reading <laughs> this great American actress, Arlene Dahl. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, we, we were going to do that, and Sid was going to play that part. Yeah. And Sid, Sid did it, and he said, you know, Carl does better James Mason than I do. You do it. And I think that was how I got my first Emmy that year because that was the part that, that and a a, a game show called Break Your Brains. Yeah. The two of them allowed me to really come into yourself. Yeah, come right. And it was Sid who handed me it on a platter. That's sweet. And and in terms of like early television and, and being part of that, was there like a community? Did everyone know each other from all the different shows? Oh, I think so. Sure. Yeah. And well, how, we didn't hang out together. We, there was no time to hang busy, out. Busy, yeah. It was a live show. We did. We came in on a Monday and finished on a Saturday. Sunday we're off. We came on Monday, ten o'clock. By the way, it's the most amazing thing. It's a live show, rehearsed live. We went home at six o'clock every night to have dinner with our people. Today on half-hour situation comedies, people are working two, three in the morning. Yeah, like doctors. I they can't never... believe it. What do you think that is? Why do you think that is? I don't know. Give people to say you have all the time and you want, they'll take it. <laughs> and tell them you have no time, you have to be on the air. Yeah, it's already right. Yeah. Live television. You, you, yeah, if, you you, if you're going to tape it, you can be casual sure, about it. Sure. But if you know you have to hit the, the, 830, the 8 o'clock spot and you have to, the, when the clock hits 8, you've got to be on the air. It's interesting. I never thought about that. That, like, you know, now with, there's so many writers and there's so much time and there's so much correcting and there's so many, you know, different uh, cooks in the kitchen that they overthink it. Sometimes they ruin the, the, the immediacy of the of humor. Course, of course. Uh, well, when we did the Van Dyke show, we used to do it. It was a half-hour show. We did it in a half-hour. How, how, how did that relationship start with Dick Van Dyke? Dick Van Dyke? You mean, how did I get... Well, how did you meet him? And you, oh, and that, you, was, that was one of those fortuitous things. Luckily, I, uh, there was a pilot called Head of the Family. I wrote 13 episodes. Is when all people, you? When people were offering me situation comedies... They weren't very good, and my wife said, why don't you write one? Yeah. <laughs> so so I wrote one, and then I said, well, if I'm going to do the pilot, I might as well have a second or third script. In the summer, th- summer I, uh, the summer in Fire Island, in about six weeks, I wrote 13 of them. I said, here's a Bible for whoever comes after me. So with 13 scripts, I did the pilot. Wasn't I was all right. It wasn't very good. It, it was, was okay. for you. It was okay. I yeah. did it with Barbara Britton and Morty Gunty and Sylvia Miles. And it, it was okay. It didn't sell. That year, Horses and Guns sold a lot. You know, a lot of... Westerns. Uh, Westerns. Yeah. And, uh, and so I forgot about it. I started doing movies. Uh, I wrote a couple movies, but the thrill of it all. And then, but my agent, Harry Calshon, bless him, was so upset that these 13 good televisions, and I knew they were good. I said, this is the best I'll ever do. Yeah. And if they don't want it. So he called me and he said, you got to come in and see Sheldon Leonard. I said, I'll see him, but I'm not going to have anything to do with this. I don't want to. And Sheldon was the guy, and I do a good impression of Sheldon here. I said, I don't want to fail with the same material twice. I said, this is the best I can do. And we did it. And he said, you won't fail. We'll get a better actor to play you. And he suggested <laughs> Dick Van Dyke. He went to New York, saw him in Bye Bye Birdie. And the rest is, as you say, television history. And you did how many seasons? Uh, we did five seasons. I just got the box of them because I'm going to go interview Dick. Oh yeah, 158 shows. Yeah, I got them. I have. I think they're all in that box. Yeah, they are. They're they're and they're. By the way, they're 
Do you have the Blu-ray? Because they really yeah. are sharp. Nice. They're neater than when we saw them. The plaids look like plaids. You can see the hair. Uh-huh. The hair, each follicle, each hair follicle. That's important, the follicles. Yeah, yeah, yes. <laughs> now, what, in comparing like somebody, the comedic talent of somebody like Caesar to Dick Van Dyke, what was his strong suits? Oh, was, well, first of all, Sid was a, a master comic actor. Yeah. Dick was everything. He could do anything and everything you asked him to do. He was uh, he was like a, a, a six course meal. I mean, first of all, he had the most agile man I've ever uh-huh. Sid Sid, by the way, was not agile. Right, 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 right. Yeah, but he but this guy could fall, he could jump, he could he could do anything. He could sing, he could dance. Well, Sid could also sing, right. but not dance. Right. But uh, uh, so if you watch. Dick and all of his own incarnations, and as you know, and from Mary Poppins on, there's there's always something surprising that he does. Right now, you know, he's doing close harmony. He's singing for four other guys who've gone over the countries, raising really? money for things. But he loves close harmony. And you guys, uh, you still talk and hang all the time. That's I love hearing that. Yeah, I love that that that, that guys stay friends yeah. forever. Yeah, because there's so many you hear so oh, many no, stories. No. Where we, we 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 have a very close feeling about each other. When did you start directing films? Uh, I directed my first film after I saw that two of the three films that I gave out they were missing things, and I was so upset that the directors were not doing <laughs> what I thought they should do, right. and they were good directors. You were in. Huh? In movies you were in, you mean? No, the movies I'd written. Oh, okay. That were done, you know. Which ones were those? Well, there was first one was The Thrill of It All, and then there was another one called The Art of Love. Uh, what was it? I don't remember. Anyway, at one point, I said, I, I what was the first one I directed, George? you remember? Uh, Where's Papa? Papa? No, Where's Papa? Yeah, I was called in to direct that. Oh, no, Enter Laughing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I said I might as well. Yeah, I, I was upset with some things that happened on it. I did enter laughing. And then after that, it was smooth sailing. I did Where's Papa? And, and then a couple I'd written, which I loved doing, which was, uh, there was one of the labor of loves, which was uh, Burt Rigby or a Fool. Nobody knows that one, but it's, it's a beauty. You love that movie. I did four Dick, uh, uh, Steve Martin movies that I love doing. Right, The Jerk is a, yeah, is the a jerk, yeah. great they, movie. They called me in to do that one, yeah. Now, in that term, when you shifted into directing, did you feel like, you know, this is what I, this is what I really want to do, or no, it was just no, another no. thing you did? No, I did directing to, to uh, make sure the stuff I wrote. To honor the writing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't particularly want to be. But then... I, then I, you know, I got, I was good at. It. I'm a good social director. I made a very good set, which, by the way, Rob has the same ability. You make a happy set, you get your one, son. Rob, you get an awful lot of good out of the people. Yeah, and when did, like, what did it feel like when he first started sort of acting and stuff? Went well, into the family business, or so well, I loved it. I loved the fact he went into the family business, and I really loved the fact that he'd outstripped his father by far with the movies that he. Directed and, and produced for yeah, great movies. Some of the greatest movies. What's your ever. favorite one? Well, you know, I can't pick, but <laughs> I but I cannot turn turn away from um, um, the Prince's Bride. Anytime oh, yeah, it comes yeah, on the air, yeah. I just watch it. And a few good men just came on the air. That's one of the almost the perfect movie. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Great play, I guess. And and the Mr. the American President. It was yep. on last night. Yeah, and that again, it's a beautiful movie. Oh my God, he's the, he, I don't. He's only failed once or twice with movies that, you know, North. He, 
We all have done those. Where we <laughs> shudder when we say the word. And you got. I think I got to ask you to tell uh, the Albert Brooks story. Albert Brooks, I I talk about as being the uh, one of the few prodigies. Was his father was an entertainer, right? His father was Park Your Carcass on the old Eddie Cantor show. Yeah, he spoke with a a mock uh, Greek accent. Yeah, and uh, Albert, of, of course. He was a comedian. He named his kid Albert. His name is Einstein. Yeah, yeah. He had another kid. He has other kids I didn't name Albert. Right, right. But he named Albert Einstein. Now, Albert and Rob were friends when they were 16 years old in school. And uh, they were over here all the time. And uh, one story I do remember, he comes over here. He's barefoot. I said, what happened? He didn't do something his mother wanted him to do. And she was so upset that she said, you can't go out. He said, I'm going to go out. She, she took his shoes away. <laughs> So he went out anyway, and he's, he's standing in this room. He's yeah. sitting here without shoes. And I said, I said, Albert, I said, I'm a parent. I, I got to call your mother and tell you you're okay. I called his mother. I said, Albert's all right. He's here with my son. He's, he got no, he's shoes. got no shoes. Anyway, he went home, and he had no problem with but one. But I always said he could be he – he was the single funniest man I ever met. At, at, at 16, 17, he was a prodigy. He made – he made adults laugh so hard that we could not look at him. <laughs> I and, and I'll show you. The, here's the exact uh, uh, geography. See yeah. those those drapes were closed. Yeah, and we're standing here, and he comes over to me, and he's he he's uh, Robbie said he's the greatest uh, skate artist in the world. Right. <laughs> Took a regular handkerchief. Yeah, and he he said, "You have a handkerchief?" I was yes. He said, "Would you fold it? You know, fold it." You know, so I fold it like that. Yeah. And he says, okay. And he puts his, now you take that. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll tie my wrist. Right. Now that's good enough. Right. But, and it's hanging there. Yeah. That's good enough. Yeah. And it's hanging there. Yeah. He says, it's hanging uh, off your wrist. Now he says, take two pieces of Kleenex and stuff it in my nose. Yeah. We stuff it in my And now he can't breathe. He right. can breathe through his mouth, but he's <laughs> right. not. He says, no, I will get out of these. Don't help me. <laughs> I'm going behind the drapes in two seconds. I'll be out of the thing. Don't help me. I beg for it. He gets behind the drapes <laughs> and he starts thrashing and thrashing. <laughs> we hear him breathing. <laughs> <laughs> he's thrashing the the grapes are going I'm looking through this I go to I'm looking through I can't I'm laughing so hard I think I'm going to damage myself I go into the kitchen yeah. and I hear everybody laughing yeah. I peek in he's still behind the drapes thrashing <laughs> screaming he finally falls to the ground right he falls to the ground now he calls me call oh, oh. I come over and he's Take it off. Yeah. yeah. And he does this. He, yeah. He just left. And he takes it. Take, he could pull it out. Take the things out. I can't breathe. Yeah, yeah. He's got to stand to breathe. He's doing this. I take it. And he's breathing. Now, that's, yeah. that's, that's genius. <laughs> Greatest escape artist in the world. Now, he's done, he's done the most miraculous. Uh, Some of his movies. Yeah. My favorite things ever was seeing his very first movie. It was just brilliant. Uh, real Life. Real life, yeah, yeah, it was great, and he was a, like he's another guy that just had. A, you know, it's just interesting to me because you know you look at people like Mel Brooks or Sid Caesar, the way you talk about Albert Brooks. There are some people that cannot help but be funny if they if they're just sitting there. Yeah, there's no. just some part of them yeah. that they can't help but be funny, and that's what's interesting about because it seems like Dick Van Dyke is a guy who could turn it on and off if he wanted to. Yo, Dick Van is a. Yeah he, yeah, he doesn't try to be funny ever. Right, and, and Steve Martin also, very serious guy. Oh, yeah. Mind. Oh, Steve Martin is, is uh, what's the word? 
mysteriously funny. Not mysteriously funny. The funniest thing, I, I, he did something that was so crazy, but only Steve would do it. They, the Screen Actors Guild gave me some kind of an award. Or, yeah. And everybody in the world came. And and Steve, of course, was invited, but he didn't come. And he, and he sent a tape. Right. And the tape was him, just a full head of, says, Carl, I would give anything to have been there. I'm so terribly sorry I'm not with you tonight. It was a wonderful night. He says, but I couldn't because, you see, it conflicted. I'm, I'm, I'm having dinner next door. <laughs> he was eating dinner. He was eating dinner next. Now that is nobody thinks it's funny. Well, if you if and he's also maybe the most exquisite writer. He's got the language that is so amazing. He's written a few books, including Shop a biography, Girl. which yeah. I think is the most brilliant. People love that book. It's the saddest, wonderful book. A man who invented himself found he discovered who he was by writing a book almost almost found himself i mean he described a life that nobody would ever dream of that he had and then he wrote two books on art that is an extraordinary piece the the words that he uses i don't know where they when he studied all this but he's one of these sneaky guys yeah. while nobody's looking he's learning that's right, and when so you you really had a partnership with him after the jerk, right? Well, I did four movies. Yeah, we did uh, the jerk, a man of two brains. Did he bring you in on the jerk, or how did that work? No, he, yeah, I was invited to come in on the jerk. And what do you think it is that you know, in terms of like having worked with all these guys, and and being a comedy writer yourself? I mean, what was the dynamic with Steve Martin, and why did that work so well with the sensibility? Well, Steve had never been in a movie before. He was a stand-up guy, yeah. He, you know, and he hadn't acted with acting except in one little. He did a little short about the absent-minded waiter. That's the only time he worked with us, and he he felt he needed. And he'd seen my some of my work, and so they invited me to come in. I worked a little on the script with him, but mainly, he he saw how I handled the set, and he he was very comfortable with me, and I I with him. So when he did his second movie, which was the. Uh, what was the second one? Dead yeah. Men Don't Wear Plaid? Dead, oh, yeah. Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, yeah. right. He was doing um, Pennies from Heaven at the time, and I was writing it with uh, George Guype. And that was the most fun we ever had, Labor of Love. For six months, looking at old black and white film noir movies and finding a line, a, a character's name, and pasting it all together. It was like doing the, the most wonderful jigsaw puzzle and have it coming out right. That was the most fun I've ever had. Making a movie, and then the other two you did were the the man with two brains and the man all with of two me. brains came apart because Steve wanted to do something silly. He's let's do a silly movie like Donovan's brain in a jar. Yeah, and he he came up with a, a brain, and then we came up with man with two brains, which and to me, uh, everything about that movie is funny from the very first frame when he's being interviewed, and his his name is fun. when you when you have the first laugh, the name of the star is. <laughs> He says, H F U H U R U R U R F R R. He says, No, just cut a. You're almost there. Anyway, and but then when he meets meets the the brain, the brain's name is Amelmahe. U U M A H Y A Y E. Yeah. Amel, and they know they know how to spell each other. She says, Afara, U H F U R. Amelma, U M A. Yes. So they know they made it. I mean, this this is the silliest, wonderful movie ever. And when you work with somebody like that, like like in in the dynamic that you and Mel Brooks have, I mean, it's like the, it's seamless, and you you just turn him on, and you play off each oh, other. Well, well, it was yeah, because Steve, Steve would would come up with things uh, just 
Luckily, we we rode to work every day to, together, and on the on the ride, sometimes he would come up with something. I remember once, this, this I wrote about this. He um, he came up with an a, a joke. Yeah, uh, you know, shit from Shinola, and we uh, we said we it was such a great joke. I said, hey, we got to do this before we do this. Save that piece of uh, building so we can come around the corner. What's that? That's shit. What's this Shinola? And uh, he was going out into the world, and you can't go out to the world unless you know yeah, shit, shit from, from Shinola. <laughs> and I mean, it was, but, but he just so simple on the way to work. It's so it's so interesting to me because like. Um, do you think there's a difference? It's a weird question. I mean, I'm Jewish, and I resonate with, you know, when I grew up, a lot of the Jewish comics, it's a specific tone to it. And and Sid was Jewish, right? Yeah. And Mel Brooks was Jewish. And yeah. they, they're sort of iconically Jewish. By the way, did you see that special about Broadway uh-uh. music? There wasn't anybody who wrote for Broadway that wasn't Jewish. One guy, Cole Porter. <laughs> but there were 1,000 1, names. It's the one of the most. Uh, I didn't. I wasn't aware of it. It goes on and Oz, Hammerstein and Rogers and, and uh, uh, Lerner. And what do you think? Why do you think that is? I don't know. It's they kind like, of a- they like music, <laughs> <laughs> but comedy too. I don't know. No, I think uh, you know. It's interesting. But yeah. downtrodden people, you can't take music away from. Them. You can make yourself happy by singing. Yeah. Or writing a song. Right. You can't take that away from. Them. You can take physical things away. From right. Them, but you can't take away. And a sense of humor is necessary to get through life. You kill yourself if right. you don't have a sense of humor. Things. How did people live through the Holocaust? They must have found something worth living. I'm sure there was humor. Humor might have been underlying everything. Yeah, save people. Yeah, so that, I, that, that that's a that's a pretty good analysis. Were you, were you ever religious? Was your family religious? No, no, no. My father never set foot in a synagogue. He believed in God, which I don't, but he did. He said he did anyway. Yeah. But we never went to a synagogue. My friends did. Can you do some phony Hebrew? Phony Hebrew? Yeah, I can. No, let's hear it. No, I don't want to hear it. Yeah. Okay. You just got that. That's the whole service. That's, yeah. that's all of it. So is this how you, like, you, I mean, both you and Mel Brooks are incredibly have a, an amazing amount of clarity, and and you just you, you, your brains are on fire still. Well, I, I, it's it's enough to do, to do that. Do you like that book? Yeah, I love it. Oh, by the way, I'm going to say this now. Mm-hmm. This is a and this is you'll be the first one to know this. Whoever buys retail the I Remember Me book will, if they send in their name, get a free copy of. The new book, this here the book, Kark, the Kark Reiner this, book, the Kark Reiner book. Well, that's terrific. For one penny, which will go to charity, we expect to give the uh, million or two million dollars in pennies to some worthy charity. <laughs> <laughs> now, what was in, in looking back? And as a general question that you probably get before, what was the what are the crowning moments where you really felt like you know, I, I can't believe this is happening. It, that happens all the time. Every day. Yeah. <laughs> no, I. No, my. I tell you what. My career has been such a very long, st- steady, one step after another, and each one, either working or not working. Most of them worked. You know, I've had some 
dips, but most of the time they, they were... Got a bunch of awards, got Emmys. Oh, you yeah, got... I've got 12 Emmys. I've got a, a Mark Twain Award. That must have been phenomenal. Oh, it was wonderful. No, to be that, I, you know, I forgot who got it before me, but there were only two two or three people before me. Pryor huh? Pryor? Pryor was the first. Richie Pryor, right. And who was the second one? I don't know. Did but, you know Pryor? Yeah, I guess I met him once when he performed. That yeah, year, yeah, yeah. But uh, loved him. Yeah, I did. And his and his daughter is so bright. Uh, yeah, what's Rain? Jane Rain. Yeah, yeah, oh, very. She's yeah, she's great. Gifted. Yeah, and who were some of the other guys that you loved watching when you were coming up? Oh my God, I I was honed on uh, the 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 Marx Brothers. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. waited for their movies and I yeah. couldn't believe what I was seeing. And then the Ritz Brothers tickled yeah, me a yeah, lot. Yeah. But of course, Buster Keaton. Yeah. And I appreciate him later, and when I got a little older. As a director, probably. Yeah, and of course, you know, Cha Chaplin. Of yeah, course, yeah, was everybody's. Yeah. Uh, there's a there's a, a little chapter on being uh, visiting Chaplin's son in Vevey, France. I was invited there to, and speaking phony French. That's a good chapter. Do you speak French? Yes, I do speak French. But uh, when I was uh, invited by. Christopher Chaplin to do a, a benefit at Veve. I went there and, and there was a radio interviewer, television interviewer, who spoke French and he said we can have the interview in French or in English. I said let's do it in French. But and he asked me questions. I said your questions are too. I need a dictionary. And and, and I, I know you're speaking too fast. So I said if somebody will give me the your questions in French and English, I will answer you in French. And so we did that for a while until the comp, until the uh, the answers required f words that I didn't have in my lexicon. I would have to look them up in the dictionary. Right. So without breaking strides, I spoke half French and half English with a French accent, yeah. and I explained what I'm doing. I said, "Quand je parle, le mot pour le pour le pour l'idée que je veux transmettre, I will use." You know, and, uh, yeah. How'd that go over? Well, it was sensational. <laughs> and, and I, wait, here, you know, it's funny. I, I, I. You never did the mountains, though, though. You didn't end up going to the mountains? Yes. You did? Uh, I, uh, that's where I met my wife in the Adirondacks. It was an adult camp. It wasn't the, the Bourse circuit. Uh huh. It was an adult, uh, adult camp. It was a, a, um, a progressive camp where, um, is that what uh, Woody Allen referred to as socialist summer camps? Exactly. Uh -huh. There were a couple of them. There were Tamament, and there was this one was called Alabama Acres. It was a, a camp where we lived in uh, in bunks, you know, mm -hmm. in bunk for eight. Wait, and wait, what was the theme of the like? Why was it called the Progressive Camp? I mean, what was the idea? Because uh, because they 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 cared about social justice. They cared about uh, the the war, the wrong war, mm -hmm. going to the wrong wars, mm -hmm. and all of those things. Mm -hmm. They were considered, you know, commies. Yeah. And was uh, in, were you in a review? Is that what? Yeah, I was a neophyte. I had no political in interest, but somebody had seen me work, and I auditioned, and I went up there for ten dollars a week, and it was the best best training ground in the world. Because there was a comedian called Bernie Hearn. I was his straight man, and he was brilliantly funny. There were three comedians at the time: Zero Mostel, Philly Leeds, and Bernie Hearn, who were left wing comedians. Yeah, and they were brilliantly funny and nice men. And I learned a lot from him. And I also met my wife there. What was she doing? She was an assistant scenic designer. And I write about that. Uh, in terms of being a straight man, in, in terms of being a guy that's known as that, what, what does that require? 
I mean, it, it, it required. I I've I've finally fig- figured it out only in the last couple of months. What I really am. If somebody say, "What are you?" I am the master, master of ceremonies. Mm-hmm. I get a greater kick out of saying, "And here is," uh, because I've done hundreds of uh, benefits for the Writers Guild, the Directors yeah. Guild. And and I emcee these shows. I never prepare because I can't prepare. I've had this ability since I'm 18 years old. And I found that right there at the uh, Alabama Acres, where I used to do the game shows, I used to introduce acts. And I, I would find the fun by looking out at the audience. I would say what's on their minds or what's yeah. on everybody's mind. You say the truth. You don't have to be funny. Right. You say the absolute truth that everybody's thinking and somebody dares to say it. And it becomes terribly funny. So I've had this ability, and I realized that what I always have done is and enjoyed doing was introducing people. And and when you introduce a funny person, and they get a, you, and you come out smiling and applauding, you're part of the. Yeah. You're part of it. You are the one who. And I realized when I was, I became a fucking bore when uh, when uh, searching for Sugarman came out, and I saw it. I went so nuts for it. I bothered everybody to see it. I said, you've got to see this. I'll pay for you to see it. And I told people, take your wife, take your love me because you're going to... And, and you know how many thank you letters I got and people calling me saying, I would have never seen this movie. I mean, I might not have seen it, but I, I forced them to go see it. That's who I am, a master of ceremonies. That's what I do. And I get a great great pick pleasure to point to things and say, look at that. Yeah. Look at that. And also, do you feel like, yeah, look at that, but then when you're sitting up there with the funny guy and you know that there's a beat there where you've got to, you know, kind of represent the guy watching and, and take him to the next level, that, that there's a, that you kind of provide momentum. Yeah, well, that, if I have something funny to say, I'll say it, you yeah. know, and, and it'll usually, and real good comedians don't, don't figure they're being uh, challenged. Right. They, it, it, it keeps the, yeah, the pot boiling. They usually, really good comedians, feed off funny stuff and get and get funnier. So you, you like Jimmy Kimmel? Jimmy lo- Kimmel's your guy. I, I love Jimmy Kimmel, and when I go on his show, which I will do in February, what is it? February eleventh. February eleventh. Yeah. I, I can't wait to tell him, and mean it, that he, when he emceed the Emmys, he did the single funniest thing I've ever seen any MC do, including myself, which I've done a lot of funny things. Yeah. But at one point, which very many MCs do when they have a relative in the audience, they point that out to the audience, is there my mother and father sitting in the fifth <laughs> row, and I want to, and there, and they put the camera on them, yeah. and they thank you for, for coming, it was so nice for you to come. He's, you know something, he's, when I was a kid, he's, he's my mother or somebody, my father, they gave me a briefcase to take to school. I was, in the, I was a little kid. He said, I carried that briefcase to school, and everybody made fun of me. And for the rest of the, rest of the year, I was, they were killing me with the jokes. And he said, and, and I didn't appreciate that. You know, you shouldn't have done that. It was really, <laughs> what were you thinking? And he started getting angry at his parents. He said, you know something? I don't want you here. He said, get them out of here. And they were laughing. He said, no, no, I'm serious. Get the ushers. And the ushers. <laughs> They ushered, ushered them out of the, and I said, I've never seen anybody throw their parents out of, a, out of an event. Now, that, to me, was the single funniest I'm seeing I've ever seen. And you've seen them all. Yeah. Did you like Carson? Oh, yeah. Carson, are you kidding? He was the guy everybody wanted to. Yeah. I've done 50 Carsons, but it's a lie. I did 47, and when, when I came on, I said, you know, I said, uh, 
what's his name? Tony Randall did 63. He had the record. I said, I did 47, which is good. He said, I said, but you know, an even 50 would be nicer in my resume. I said, if you'll do this, and he did it. I said, if you'll introduce me three times, I'll make three entrances and I can cut them in. And so I made an entrance, <laughs> the regular entrance. And then I took my jacket and put it on backwards, you know, yeah, yeah, right. with the sleeves. And then I carried, carried it on the third and I sat down. And so we have 50 <laughs> You made your number. Yeah. That's hilarious. Right, right. Well, that's a great way to end. Thank you, Mr. Reiner. Oh, wait, chicken feathers. Oh, chicken feathers. Give me one of those. This is you and Mel Brooks do this when he comes yeah. over here? The one you were you leaning on this one? Were yeah. you? Oh yeah, then it probably has. Wait here. Okay. All right. Yeah, okay. Well, I'll. Yeah, there's feathers coming out of this. Yeah. Okay. Right here. Yeah, okay. You see, uh, at night. Yeah. I'll feel around. Yeah. And it's there's a little something. You feel something sticking out. Yeah. This started when, when. Uh, Somebody sat and said, uh, you know. Uh, oh, you're pulling their feathers coming out. Yeah, feathers come out. Yeah. And we get a bunch of them. And I'm gonna, I am I have a uh, plastic bag yeah. that I fill with them. Yeah. I don't know what I'm going to do with them. Give, give one to Mark. I mean, as a souvenir. So what's this have to do with you and Mel? You both do this? Yeah, we both do this. <laughs> uh, oh, but only, only if, if there's a show that's on that we don't have to look at the screen. But so you, you do have to pay attention to what you're doing here. Well, you'll never find these. So you guys just sit and hang out for an hour or two? Well, about three, four hours. Yeah. yeah. Every night. Do you talk? Of course we talk. We talk. He, and bec and sometimes he, while we're watching something that's not terribly, he'll fall asleep, and I won't wake him because he drives home, and I'm saying he probably better he sleeps here than falls behind him. Yeah. He falls asleep behind the wheel. What is that thing he told me about movies that you you like watching movies with certain phrases? In oh them? yeah, th that's true. What? And it's really it started with the born, the born tragedy, the born uh, you know the born th series. Yeah. And the phrases are. Secure the perimeter, lock all doors, <laughs> and and if some if one character in the movie says, get some rest, <laughs> if those. If those words are in the movie, that movie's a good movie. <laughs> we do love Justified. Yeah. And, and it, it, it follows what I read once. The best, the greatest heroes are made by the greatest villains. In other words, a movie that has a really great villain. You never want to see that guy die. Or maybe at the very end. But yeah. But because the, they, they're the ones who make the greatest heroes. And I'm thinking that Christopher Waltz in, uh, in Glorious Bastards. Yeah, yeah. That was one of the best villains. I could watch that guy being mean forever. That was the one of the most brilliant performances. So I think you're saying that a, that a hero... Basil, without Basil Rathbone, half of the movies we've seen, you know, would yeah. never have been as good. So the hero is the villain straight man. Yes, right. All right, I'm going to take those feathers. Thanks for talking to me. Okay, hi, it's me. I'm back, and I just listened. What a, this was an amazing couple of interviews for me. It, it was beautiful, beautiful to sit with Carl and and listen to him and watch him interact on the phone with people in the room with me. But nothing is going to top what happened after I shut the mics off. 
And I will tell you this now. We turn off the mics and I'm sitting there and almost immediately George Shapiro, who, as I said, was napping uh, in the chair across from Carl on and off, was the first to get up and go, what a great interview. That was a great interview. Wasn't that great? And then Carl starts fiddling with remote controls. He's like, I got to show you that PBS thing uh, with the Jews in the musical. I got to show you that. I want to I mentioned it. I want to show it to you. And I'm like, okay, and I'm putting my stuff away. And then uh, and then George Shapiro goes, is there ice cream? Is there any ice cream? And then he wanders into the kitchen. The publicist guy who's there, he wanders into the kitchen. And uh, I'm watching Carl. He's got the TV on. He's he's looking for it. He's like, oh, maybe it's on the other TiVo, maybe this TiVo. He's not bumbling, but you know, there's a lot to be done here. And clearly he watches a lot of television, has a lot of things recorded. So then George Shapiro comes back into the room and starts handing out, uh, you know, sort of uh, some kind of low calorie ice cream sandwich. And now we're all eating ice cream. And Carl starts the um, the documentary at the beginning. So in my mind, I'm like, okay, I guess I'm hanging out. I guess I'm here for the hour. I, I don't know what happens now. Are we going to get to the list that he wanted to show me? Look, it's it's not. I don't have a lot to do, and this is an amazing thing. So I'm packing up. We're watching something on Gershwin. We're eating ice cream sandwiches. Everything is great. And then uh, the phone rings and Carl picks it up and I'm packing my bag up and I hear him go, no, it, uh, it went very well. It was very good. Uh, yes, yes. And then he taps me on the shoulder with the phone and he go, he hands me the phone. He goes, it's Mel Brooks. So I'm like, oh, okay. So I pick up the phone and I bring it to my ear and I go, Hello? And all I hear is 80%, right? Right? <laughs> and I said, maybe 85. And Mel Brooks goes, all right, maybe 85. Put Carl back on the phone. It was just too much for me to even, you know, put it together that, you know, that for three weeks, you, you know, this is, it was, this was the beat. This was the callback. This was the moment. That is comic genius. Killed me. I kept it in because I didn't know, you know, if it, look, they're comedians. I just, I just handled it like anyone would like, oh my God. I just waited for the longest punchline available by Mel Brooks. Weeks, weeks. So then Carl gets back on the phone. And I think from what I could glean, the conversation was Carl was insisting that he was going to roast his own chicken. And then, like uh, everything starts to break up, I pack up and I I, I get the the PBS thing. It didn't I, he didn't seem to be hung up on showing me the list at the end. And I say goodbye to Carl and I thank him. And um, and then I'm walking out to, with Shapiro. You know, we finish our ice cream sandwiches. I'm walking out with George Shapiro, and um, you know, we get outside. And he goes, "That was great. That was a great job." He goes, "What did Mel say?" And I said, "He said Carl's about eighty percent." And George Shapiro goes, yeah, he tells the truth. Then he walks away and I got in my car and I listened to the interview I had just done with uh, one of the great comedy minds of, uh, of ever, of ever. And I drove home listening. Look, people, that's the end of the show. I hope you enjoyed this, this set of interviews. I did, uh, and I, I tell you, all we can hope for is that... Uh, we have the type of lives that Mel Brooks and uh, Carl Reiner did, and, and we stay as strong in spirit and mind for as long as they did. It was uh, just uh, overwhelming. Okay, shalom. <laughs>